So I don't know what of that's going to make it into the final edit. I assume none of it. Should we reverse it this time? Sure, do it. All right, let's see if I mess this up. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Marvel Reread Club. My name's nope, Steve. you already messed it up. You what? You first you say hello, I'm Steve, uh-huh. and then I say hello, I'm Matt, and then you say welcome to Marvel Reread Club, and then we go into the music. Okay, so I can't do it my own way. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve, and I'm Matt. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, Matt, what you been doing the past couple of weeks? Oh, I've been keeping busy. My daughter has just left for sleepaway camp for the first time. And then next week, my son is going to get to go to sleepaway camp. So we are recording this at a not ungodly hour for once because I don't have to wait until I've put both kids down. I've just been doing a tremendous amount of work. I've been having a good time in Edmonton, Illinois. Things have been going well. How about you, Steve? Last week was like the before times. I had a massive family wedding, uh, which you couldn't make it to because you had just been to your friend Jeff's wedding the previous weekend, I guess. And then I came back and then I had less than a 24-hour turnaround to fly out to Portland, Oregon, to teach a software class. And then I come back and I had less than a 24 hour uh, layover, 24 hours after the red eye flight getting in to then drive down to Florida. It's been a little bit quieter this week. That's uh, that's what's been going on here. So we're on what, April of 1964. 1964. This would have hit the stands at around January, maybe. Yeah. December or January. So definitely this was well within the range of the world had just been changed after the Kennedy assassination. You know, we might be getting to the point this month or probably next month when the creators would be aware of that as well when they're creating these things. So we'll see if that seems to inform any more of their creations as we go forward. Well, I remember when I read the Herbie the Fat Fury comics, have you ever had a chance to read those? I'm familiar with them, but no, I haven't. They're really great comics, and I highly recommend them. But he would frequently be called in by Kennedy to go on missions and would flirt with Jackie while he was there. And then one month, he was called in by LBJ, and he flirted with Ladybird while he was there, and it was very sad. And it's like, oh, no, I guess Kennedy's been killed. There's not as much of a clear demarcation in the Marvel comics. So uh, I believe we're going to start with Amazing Spider-Man. Yes? Yes, let's do it. With a Spider-Man issue that you are not going to like because it is all about the soap operatics around Petty Branch, which you are stated to be not a fan of. I don't hate it. As you said, they need to complicate the relationship. But something about it is just too angsty. The whole uh, uh, mob backstory just feels too dark for what I was looking for here. So that's really where my thing comes in. This is Amazing Spider-Man number 11 with the return of Dr. Octopus. So we start out with Pete half-clothed as Spider-Man, as he's got some uh, chemistry stuff in the foreground, I'm guessing making some more web fluid. Anyway, he hears on the news that Dr. Octopus is about to be released from jail because he's finished his sentence. Well, Pete is not having any of this, so then he goes and swings out to the municipal prison. So he's in municipal prison rather than, like, state prison or something like that. He gets there, and then he comes into the warden's office and says, you can't let 
Dr. Octopus free. Uh, apparently, while well, he's a great science student, not a very good civics student. <laughs> yes. He thinks that the warden could just be like, you know what? You're right. We are going to keep this guy in here. You know, that's, that's not how well, things work. What they say on the radio is, we interrupt our program for a bulletin. Having served his full prison term, the notorious Dr. Octopus is free released today. Now, of course, all of these comics, like the crazy thing about everything we've read so far in these comics is that they are all still in continuity. DC has rebooted their continuity so many times since the early 60s, and Marvel never officially totally has. The only book they have sort of rebooted is Spider-Man, where they did do a massive like, okay, a tremendous amount of the Spider-Man comics you've read no longer happened because Peter was no longer ever married to MJ. But generally speaking, these comics from before the MJ marriage were never rebooted. They're still in continuity, which means that they have to keep collapsing the timeline more and more and more so that essentially a Spider-Man comic happened every day in order for him not to be 70 years old in the comics these days. So if this is issue 11 and he was arrested in issue three, then he has served a seven day sentence. (laughs) That includes the trial. (laughs) Yes. It was already kind of ridiculous for it to be this short. I don't know how much of it is, well, we this is a great villain and we want to go ahead and get it back in circulation, and how much of it is Steve Ditko talking about how unjust compassion is when it comes to crime. Could be one, the other, or both. Pete comes up with a nifty solution, which will be a long-running thing that he has. He goes and develops a little tracking device that looks like a spider which he can then put on things and track. Now, at this point, there's a little receiver he has to have that sort of pings to him. I believe that by the 80s, it was attuned to his spider sense, and he can yeah. just pull it that way, right? Yeah. yeah. But at this point, he's got a little handheld thing. So he is there when Dr. Octopus is released, and lo and behold, Betty Brant is in the driver's seat of the car that he gets into. Pete is, of course, shocked, but then throws the spider tracker what do they call them the spider tracer tracker they i recently there was a spider-man trivia quiz on ordered league and they accepted both spider tracker and spider tracer for the question about those so he gets a spider tracer on the car and then happens to find a little map or something like that that they dropped of philadelphia so he's like wow it's a map of philadelphia i guess i'm gonna have to go down there cut to philadelphia and blackie um blackie gaxton Blackie Gaxton, apparently notorious mobster, has Betty's ne'er-do-well brother, who he's shaking down here, and essentially is a lawyer, but he's also an inveterate gambler. He has gotten into essentially being a mob lawyer and in debt to the mob all at once. This is, uh, this is bad news. He yeah. has gotten Betty mixed up in this. That's why Betty was there in the car. What's her brother's name? Bradley? Bennett. Bennett, Bennett. Brandt. Bennett had to get her involved in order to hopefully get his debt wiped clean. But then, you know, it's clear that Betty is getting drawn further into this, isn't getting in danger. He's just feeling more and more ashamed of himself. And so is Betty. Betty is also feeling ashamed and terrible about this whole thing. So Pete then goes back to uh, Aunt May and says, hey, Aunt May, I'm thinking of taking a little trip this weekend. I've always wanted to see Philadelphia and see the historical sites. And she says, how nice, Peter. The trip will do you good. You've been so listless lately. And then she says, I'm not going with you, though. And he's like, yeah, it's awesome. Then here's one thing that really jumped out at me. It says, after the scene where he says, hey, I think I'm going to go down yes. to Philadelphia. This then is the so next, strange. The next panel, it says, a few minutes later, after a jet from New York lands at the Philadelphia airport, and there's Spidey swinging around Philadelphia. <laughs> 
It is such a bizarre caption. One of the most bizarre captions in Roman history. Why is that just a typo? Was it supposed to be a few it's just, minutes later? It's, it's such an unforced error. <laughs> and I, I know the airport security and stuff like that wasn't nearly what it is now. You know, you could probably just walk up when a plane's about 10 minutes from taking off and say, hey, I want to buy a ticket. Also, Pete's not rolling in money. Philadelphia is not that far away. I would think he could take a train. And get yeah, this get, done. It's not a long train trip. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like anyway. the when I was living in New York and would occasionally go down to Philadelphia to visit our relatives for Thanksgiving. This was in the late 1990s. You know, you could get there by train for like seventeen dollars, and a flight would be like one hundred and fifty dollars. So yeah, yeah, Pete is totally taking New Jersey Transit in this case. <laughs> He's then just swinging around Philadelphia, hoping to get a ping on his device. He finally gets one. And changes back into Pete to go ahead and confront Betty uh, in person. He's saying, look, Betty, I just couldn't let you just walk out of my life. I had to track you down. She's like, you know, what a fool I was and I should have trusted you. So Pete decides, you know what? When this adventure in Philadelphia is over, I'm going to let her know I'm Spider-Man. I love her. This is just something I need to do. You just know the way this is going. This is not going to actually turn out that way. (laughs) And indeed, it is not. Dr. Octopus, who was taken down there to Philadelphia, it turns out the reason that he was driven there by Betty is because Blackie Gaxton is paying Dr. Octopus to bust him out of prison. Uh, Spider-Man is showing up at the prison to go see what's going on with Blackie Gaxton. And of course, as his usual luck goes, he shows up right after the jailbreak happened. And then right as the prison guards or cops or whatever are coming on the scene, they're like, hey, Blackie Gaxton just broke out, and there's Spider-Man, just as luck. So he gets away. We then have more stuff with the Brants getting deeper into this stuff, and they're starting to both realize that these mobsters are not going to wipe the debt clean and let them both go. That it just seems that it's like, nope, I think we're in this for life, and that life might be pretty short. So then meanwhile, Spider-Man jumps onto this ship that they were going to use for their getaway, but somehow slips on a rope and sprains his ankle Uh, and this is a nice thing also about spider-man that you know he'll just sometimes injure himself doing something he'll just screw up right he is then brought in at gunpoint as a prisoner into the room we've got in this room all converging at the bottom of page 11 spider-man blackie gaxton bennett brand betty brand and dr octopus and a couple of hoods Yes, thank you. Spider-Man, because he's got the sprained ankle, is trying to do all of his fighting while suspended from something, right? Yeah. So he's just always hanging from the ceiling uh, so he can stay off of his ankle. In the fight, Spider-Man is struggling with Blackie. Blackie's shooting his gun and is going wildly around the room, and it ends up catching Bennett maybe in the gut or the heart or something. He is falling over. Clearly, this is a fatal wound, and he is dying. Betty automatically blames Spider-Man for her brother's death and is saying, it's your fault. If you hadn't interfered, if you hadn't tried to be a hero, it might not have happened. I hate you. Do you hear? I hate you. He, meanwhile, is freaking out inside because he's like, oh, my God, this is kind of going to throw a wrench in my plans to get closer to her. Spider-Man ends up getting rid of the rest of the mobsters, and then it's down to just uh, him and Dr. Octopus. They're up on top of the ship at this point. Uh, But once again, Spider-Man's trying to stay off this ankle, and it's not always easy. I mean, I got to say, Ditko has just drawn the hell out of this boat. Ditko is loving this boat. And it's, you know, a very complex space. 
it is the sort of space that a lot of artists would go like, oh, do I have to draw this boat? Like every different room of this boat is a different sort of thing and all the different stairways and all the different levels. Dicko just loves it. And it is such a wonderful space to have this massive fight sprawling in and out of the various rooms and up on the decks and down below decks and all sorts of places. It is just gorgeous. Dicko is like watching a great film noir, even Doctor Strange, but especially Spider-Man. It's like watching a great film noir every month. This is like watching Journey into Fear. This is like watching a great boat set noir. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of mobsters who are left who haven't already been um, knocked out. They're trying to make it off with Betty. uh, And they're thinking Betty is going to be their insurance policy because Blackie is currently not going anywhere at the moment. And uh, so they're like, let's take the broad. Dr. Octopus knocks those two out. And then here comes the launch that was originally supposed to be coming to get Blackie. Spider-Man then engages Dr. Octopus. Dr. Octopus escapes out to that boat, but Betty at least is safe back on the deck of the previous boat. So that's good. But this is the escape boat that was originally meant for Blackie that's just shown up. Dr. Octopus shows up on it and he's like, hey, boat driver, you're taking me now. (laughs) So there's more fantastic fisticuffs on top of this other boat. The driver of that boat is like, you know what? I did not sign up for this. I was going to take one mobster out to someplace. Now I've got two super characters fighting. I am out of here. So he just dives off and now the boat's out of control. So it smashes into a piling. And again, you're just talking about uh, how great Ditko is doing with the art on this. Page 20, panel three, where Spider-Man is swimming underwater. And you see the tire that's tied to the pier, half out of the water and half underwater. And the wavy darkness under the water. It's really, really great. So many artists are like, oh, God, I'm showing two people fighting. Do I really have to do a background, too? Do I really have to show what's going on behind these two people fighting? It's all anybody cares about. But if you look at a page like 19, the setting is such an intimate part of the fight that yeah. there's you know no sense at all of like, oh, do I have to draw a background? This is a three-dimensional world. This is a world with a lot of literal depth to it as we see the background, the middle ground, the foreground we see them interacting with their environment in a wonderful way. Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus don't end up finishing their fight. Dr. Octopus somehow got away in the boat crash, and so Spider-Man goes back to check on Betty. It turns out that Betty has been rescued by the cops, who are also there taking off the mobsters. So he goes ahead and uses his webbing to make a wrapping on his foot so that he can get around, hopefully, and people won't notice that he's got a sprained ankle. Betty then says, you know, in the heat of the moment, I was really blaming Spider-Man for killing my brother, but I don't anymore. You know, I realized that he basically made his own bed. Spider-Man was just doing what he does, but the thought of Spider-Man is just too painful for me. I will always associate Spider-Man with the sudden and tragic and awful death of my brother. You know, I don't blame him personally, but I, yeah, no, I just can't deal with spider-man so of course that means pete can't share his secret with her and that's where we leave it i think this is the first time we see pete walking home with a giant spectral spider-man walking home above him this is something that dicko will return to in this great noirish city this great noirish nighttime skyline wasn't the last panel of amazing fantasy 15 kind of similar to that or not am i making that up i can go look it up Yeah, it's interesting. It's a similar panel, except for he's actually dressed as Spider-Man. But it's a very similar panel in terms of the moon and in terms of the angles of the city buildings. But, you know, you don't have the specter of Spider-Man over Pete. He's just dressed as Spider-Man walking away. But it's a very similar panel. 
Thank you for looking that up. Yeah. Do you have any further thoughts on this rather fantastic issue? This is an absolutely gorgeous issue. Dicko is just, you know, drawing the hell out of it, co-potting the hell out of it. I always like so patriotic element of Spider-Man books. I think that Betty is just a fascinating character in terms of what it's like to date your boss's secretary, who turns out to be mired in this life of crime. And it's a whole lot to dump on a poor high schooler's head. I find it just to be very believable and believably sordid story. You know, I think it's great to have Dr. Octopus back. Dicko continues to draw the hell out of him and his character is believable. It, it doesn't feel like a stretch to have him back at all. You know, he's a great villain and is, is nice to have him back, even though it does seem a little bit quick for him to have finished his sentence at this point. No one was killed in his first appearance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could well be that that was considered a misdemeanor, what he did in the previous appearance. And sentencing wasn't nearly as harsh then as it is now. No. But yeah, you get the feeling that Stan is tired of having everybody escape from prison all the time. And he's like, why can't someone just serve their sentence? It's like, well, Stan, because... If this comic book continues to be published for 60 years and Spider-Man's 60th anniversary was just two weeks ago, I want to say it was just about a week ago and we're recording this. But if this comic book is continuing to be published for six years without a reboot, then all of these stories have to happen within mere hours of each other. So, no, it makes absolutely no sense for him to have completely served his uh, sentence. But as we've talked about before, one of the whole things that made this such fertile creative ground was the fact that they were not thinking about that sort of stuff. That, you know, it's let's just do the next thing and let's just keep going, but still building on it, but not thinking of it in terms of, well, this has to stand up for 60 years. (laughs) They had very little oversight, very little uh, expectations on them here. It is now time to move on to an issue that we have had teased for us for months now. (laughs) And I believe it's your turn for this one. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking, oh, you should do Spider-Man because I'd end up doing Fantastic Four. But that's not the case, because if we go alphabetically, the next book isn't Fantastic Four, which you will end up doing again. It is <laughs> Daredevil number one. This is our first major debut with the number one that we've had in a while. It is a strange book. The thing that is true of this book that has not been true of any other book we've done is that this is the only Marvel book we've gotten to on this podcast that I have never read before. Because I don't like Daredevil. I really don't like Daredevil. And when I first read these Marvel comics to myself, when they first became available on BitTorrent, and I downloaded them and started reading them many years ago before anybody ever dreamed there'd be such a thing as Marvel Unlimited, I was just like, I'm going to read every single Marvel comic. And I started reading them, except Daredevil. And I'm just (laughs) not going to do Daredevil because I'm just not interested And I didn't read the Daredevils. And then when I read them to my son a couple of years later, I just, again, I just like, I'm just not going to do Daredevil. I just don't care about Daredevil. I just think it's a dumb idea and I'm going to skip it. I'm not going to read it. Now, I love Frank Miller's Daredevil, even when he's just drawing the book with Roger McKenzie writing. Certainly when he's writing and penciling the book, it's one of my all-time favorite books. And of course, when he just comes back as a writer with David Mass Kelly penciling, those are three fantastic runs. And I love later the Anacenti run on Daredevil. But that is it. I tried the Kevin Smith. I tried the Brian Michael Bendis. I tried the Ed Brubaker. I just don't like the character and was not a big fan of the TV show. I just don't like the character. So I just have spent my whole life up until this point refusing to read Daredevil number one. So I have just read it for the first time and I like this comic. Yeah, I'm 
somewhat similar, but, you know, when I first started reading these, I was reading everything, you know, so I was reading every Sergeant Fury, I was reading, basically, if it showed up on Marvel Unlimited when I searched for that month, I read it. And so I read this, and this was my very first exposure ever, really, to Bill Everett's art. And I was gobsmacked. (laughs) This is a gorgeous book. Just absolutely stunning. I think I would stop short of gorgeous or stunning, but I assumed that I would not like Bill Everett's art or copotting. I knew he was a Golden Age guy, and I'm like, oh, they sort of were stooping low on this book because they were bringing back this 1940s writer, penciler, uh, who had what he had co-created. He created a Submariner. Yes, he had been the writer artist who had created the Submariner. And I knew he didn't last long on the book and eventually got replaced with Wally Wood. And the book had a whole endless roundabout of Petzlers, I guess, then Wally Wood was shortly followed by John Romita, who was followed by Gene Cohen. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I didn't want to read the book is I'm like going, oh, it was some 40s dude co-potting and penciling the book who didn't last long. And so I'm not going to commit to it. It's certainly dated. This does not feel like a 1960s comic book. This feels like a 1940s comic book. But specifically, it feels like Will Eisner's The Spirit Hmm. and to a certain extent, Jack Cole's Plastic Man. But first and foremost, this book feels like Will Eisner's The Spirit to me, which was a delightful surprise. Yeah. And so the cover, it looks like, is a mixture of Kirby and Bill Everett. So it looks like there are certain parts that are penciled by Kirby, inked by Bill Everett, and then certain parts that are just pure Bill Everett. Right away on the cover, they've already lost confidence in Daredevil before we ever begin things, because they're like, remember when we introduced Spider-Man and there's a big picture of Spider-Man, a worthy companion magazine to such all-time greats as the fabulous Fantastic Four. And there's a picture of the Fantastic Four. And then they're like, okay, now that we've lured you in with these comics you actually like, now we're going to half-heartedly offer up our new comic book, which is Daredevil. It says, now we continue the Mighty Marvel tradition with Daredevil. Can you guess why Daredevil is different from all other crime fighters? But they don't say what the big hook of the book is on the cover. They sort of hint it because they say in this issue, you will meet the most unusual hero of all, Matt Murdock, who is wearing sunglasses, which is the one hint to what's going to be going on inside the book. Fun-loving Funky Nelson and gorgeous Karen Page. Those are clearly drawn by Everett, not by Kirby. But then there's a picture clearly drawn by Kirby of Daredevil leaping towards us. Another reason why I never read this book, that was also what Daredevil had is sort of embarrassingly dumb costume. There's a reason why superheroes do not have big patches of yellow on their costumes. This was his original red and yellow costume with more yellow than red, sort of made to look like a high school wrestler sort of mm-hmm. costume. It is not a good costume. I don't know. Are you, how do you feel about this costume? Continue. I think you're I think you're on the right track. Yeah. First page is a splash page reiterating all the stuff that was on the cover. I think that's actually the exact same Daredevil image that was on the cover. I think this is a, a cut and paste job. Yeah. So it says The Orchard of Daredevil, written by Stanley, illustrated by Bill Everett, lettered by Sam Rosen. Of course, Bill Everett probably deserves more of the writing credit than he gets on this cover page. Then we cut to page number two, and suddenly we are in an entirely different art style that looks a lot like Will Eisner, a lot like Jack Cole. And we've got these hoodlums sitting around in Fockwell's gym underneath one of those little uh, poker table lamps playing poker. Terrible shows up, beats up these hoods. We get some truly terrible reproduction on the bottom of page three, where you would think Bill Everett, who was the most senior artist working for Marvel at the time, would know what reproduces well and what doesn't. But uh, the art isn't reproducing very well here. 
Daredevil beats him up for several pages. It's interesting that he's not very differentiating from Spider-Man at this point. So one of them says, you punk, I'll fix it so you never make another wisecrack again. And Daredevil says, bite your tongue, Porky. Think what a loss that would be to the world. And it's like, okay, this is very similar to Spider-Man's wisecracking. Well, and, and Daredevil would be that sort of wisecracking character pretty much until the Miller era, mm-hmm. or I guess maybe the McKenzie era. But yeah, I mean, he was very much like dollar store Spider-Man yeah. for the first 20 years that the character was around. As the cover sort of promises. Yes. So then he finishes picking them up, says he's going to get their boss to fix her. Then we flash back. And right away, there's a lot of Frank Miller in here. The first time we see young Matt Murdock, it's with his father, boxer Battling Murdock, with his hands on his shoulders in a panel that Miller reproduced many times, making him promise that he'll study every chance he gets and never fight, which he promises his dad he will. Given how many of these panels were directly copied by Miller, I was surprised they don't have a panel that Miller really loves of one bully pushing Matt over while another bully kneels down behind him. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, is that panel going to be in here too? But it's not. Matt gets fed up having to study all the time. He starts secretly training himself to fight as well at night, which is something I got to say Spider-Man never does. Spider-Man just becomes a good fighter as a superhero, despite never having had any fighting training whatsoever. But we get to see uh, the expensive training regimen of Matt. Meanwhile, his father unexpectedly has a resurgence of his boxing career. But while his father is doing that and getting in bed with a guy named The Fixer in his boxing career, we see a completely unrelated event. Now, it's interesting. When I, I tried my hand at one point in the early aughts of writing up treatments for every Marvel hero. And in my version of Daredevil, him getting blinded was related to his father getting in bed with gangsters. Mm-hmm. It would seem that would make the most sense, but it doesn't. It's completely unrelated. One day he sees an old man crossing the street. Uh, sorry, an old blind man crossing the street. I guess I never noticed that the old man's blind. He yeah. is. That's been clear in every reiteration of this stuff, whether it's Frank Miller or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, Which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. It's even if you look at the panel in the upper left hand corner of page nine, it's a very golden age truck that is sort of careening on two wheels around the corner. And feels right out of the golden age, not like a silver age drawing. Young Matt Murdock, who can still see, pushes the blind man out of the way. And then, but, oh, irony, a radioactive canister pops out of the back of the truck, hits him in the eyes. This is not explicitly shown in this comic. Frank Miller would later gleefully show it. <laughs> the uh, the radioactive canister bouncing off, hit him in the eyes, and then rolling into the sewer quite propitiously. <laughs> and... Um, I don't think we see it roll into the sewer in the Daredevil comic, but yes, we'll go on. <laughs> and then the comic is moving fast. You know, we never get to see his father find out his son's going to be blind. We just see his father encouraging him now that he's blind to continue to study. So we should go ahead and talk about how, you know, <laughs> Frank Miller eventually takes over writing and drawing this book in 1980 and turns it into one of the all-time great Marvel comics. But Frank Miller would frequently revisit the origin. But in the Frank Miller comic books, he was trained by a ninja master named Stick. And he was fighting a group of ninjas called The Hand. Two comic book artists named Eastman and Laird, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, I believe are their names, decided to do a just one-off jokey parody of Miller's Daredevil comics, in which it shows the radioactive canister bouncing out of the truck, hitting Matt Murdock in the face, blinding him, and then bouncing into the sewers where radiation leaks out onto four turtles who are living in the sewers. They then 
and onto a rat. And onto a rat. They then grow up to become the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The rat becomes their mentor, who instead of being named Stick, is named Splinter. And they fight ninjas, who instead of being called the hand are called the foot. And the great irony is that this becomes more popular than Daredevil has ever been, including more popular than Miller's Daredevil ever was. And so now we have this whole generation who grew up on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and had no idea any of this was a parody of Daredevil or specifically of Frank Miller's Daredevil. Every now and then I'll pull out the origin page for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Frank Miller's recounting of the origin of Daredevil and put them up side by side. And this is just something that just seemed like, of course, everybody knows this because I was right at the age when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic broke and I would been reading the Frank Miller Daredevils. And so it just was like, oh, yeah, it's just one of those things. But it is amazing to me the number of people who have no idea. <laughs> and I show them these things. They're like, oh, my God. what are you? <laughs> yeah, it's something else. We got something interesting on the page. There was something that actually got cut out of our previous episode. So we can reiterate it here. Alicia Masters is blind. They show her eyes all the time. We see Alicia Masters blind eyes all the time. But they have an unofficial rule that you can never see Matt Murdock's blind eyes. It's hmm, something that's right. just not a lot. We've linked to this Marvel Comics Facebook group, and people were posting an image at one point of, on the cover, Daredevil's face mask is ripped off, and they're like, oh, it's Matt Murdock, but he's wearing sunglasses under his face mask. Uh, Again, that because, mask, mask technology in the Marvel Universe <laughs> is just far beyond our ability to understand. And so we see here Matt Murdock training himself in the gym alone wearing his sunglasses and it's quite silly but then we find out that he has had heightened senses he now has his hearing his smell his touch and his taste are so good that it's better than being able to see but now it's never made clear we understand that he can read by running his finger along the page and feeling the raised ink but nobody else knows that so how did they think that he graduated from law school how did they think he was able to become the top student in his law school if he couldn't read? And given there were probably no Braille law books at the time, and given I'm that there, sure was probably, there were, yeah, I guess maybe. No, I don't know. That's always been my assumption is there are Braille law books and whether or not he could learn Braille that quickly, he could tell people that he did and just be you know, reading the uh, printed uh, ink on the pages uh, with his fingers. But yeah, I'm, I'm just guessing he just said, oh, I'm just doing it the Braille. And, you know, people aren't yeah. necessarily following up with how many Braille books are there actually available in a law library? <laughs> yes, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. He has graduated high school now, gets into law school, uh, hooks up with his roommate, Flocky Nelson. Flocky Nelson is very impressed by him, says very cleverly, pitches his star to that wagon and says, hey, this guy's a great student and a good guy, and I'm going to become his friend and hopefully eventually his law partner. Meanwhile, Matt's father is doing quite well in the boxing ring. He's doing so well, unfortunately, that this mobster, the fixer, takes enough of an interest in him and he says, okay, now you got to throw your next match. And he oh, I had, I had a different take on that. My understanding was that his resurgence as a boxer was because he was already picked out as a mark to be their fall guy in the first place and that they were paying other people to take dives for him to build up his value so they would have a big payoff later. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's the less charitable reading. <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, he's good enough to win this fight that he was supposed to throw. He gets shot and killed by the mobsters. And uh, so poor Matt has been through the rigor in this issue. He's lost his sight, and now he's lost his father. But it's interesting. The comic just keeps going. 
it's not like the next day he goes out and avenges his father's death. It cuts to several years later. He's graduating law school. He's beginning his practice. They hire a secretary named Karen Page. She's got this very 60s bouffant hairdo, which makes her look very different from curvy women or dicko women. I think it's the same hairstyle that Kirby had been doing for Sue Storm for a while, but it's just that Bill Everett renders it much, much differently in his style. That's yes. my reason of it. Yeah. That's entirely possible. Daredevil decides to become a superhero, sews himself a costume, and <laughs> just, once again, a blind guy just being like, I'm going to go sew a costume. Here are the colors that I need. But he, they do say, I can even blend the colors for each colored fabric has a different feel to me. Like, okay, we're, we're getting a bit far with that. But then we get to one of the many silly aspects of Daredevil, which is he's like, oh, I'm a blind superhero. So my blind man's walking cane is going to be part of my costume. And it's like, well, that's okay if he doesn't have a secret identity. But <laughs> if you're a blind man and you're secretly a superhero, would you really have a blind man's cane as part of your costume? But he does. I guess at this point, we skip over what happened in the opening sequence. He is now tracked yes. in the fixer. Finds the fixer. He finds also the person who is the killer who worked for the fixer and actually killed his father. Certainly very distinctive art on the top left panel of page 16 of the fixer's face. Oh, yeah. Looking like something right out of Will Eisner's The Spirit, right out of Jekyll's Plastic Man, totally different from any comic books that were being published in 1964. He is beating them up with his blind man's cane, using it to sort of hook their feet as they try to run away and doing all kinds of stuff. At one point, they push him out a window, but since he's got his sort of little cane on him, he uses it to flip himself around a flagpole and come right back in the window and beat them up some more. Funky is walking around New York, worried what's going to happen to Matt, wandering around the city as a blind man. Matt ends up chasing the fixer into a nicely drawn subway. He chases down the fixer, causes the fixer to have a heart attack, who then keels over dead, and he catches the guy who actually killed his father and gets him to confess. He then goes back to Funky and Karen. Karen says, we just had a call, Mr. Murdoch, an accused murderer named Slade. He wanted to know if we defend him. And Foggy says, but I turned him down from the police record. I was convinced he was guilty. Hope you don't mind, Matt. Matt says, mind? No, I don't mind at all. Not one single bit. Right away, we are confronting the inherent weirdness of having a criminal defense attorney as a superhero. Because it's like, isn't he going to end up representing the same people who he's beating up and arresting at the beginning of the book. Now, they have handled this in interesting ways over the years, sometimes much better than others. To show it at its worst, you look at the terrible Ben Affleck Daredevil movie where he is getting a criminal off and then going up as superhero and going like, but I know you're guilty and now I'm going to beat you up, which is not a good concept for a character. No, that Daredevil movie is one of the most uneven movies ever. Like there are some moments in there that are just fantastic. The overall movie, though, is just a train wreck. <laughs> but it's like, oh, but if only we could rescue these couple or three little moments. <laughs> but nope, nope. It's just a train wreck. Yes. Jennifer Garner plays Electra. That's all you need to know. And then spun off into her own movie for ridiculous reasons. So we've talked about before how this issue was supposed to be published five months ago more than that because uh, vendors has been bi-monthly and we're about to get to issue four no we just did issue four right last yeah month. i guess Avengers um, started nine months ago so this book yeah. was supposed to be published nine months ago so i don't know to what degree that's due to bill everett being slow with his deadlines nine months slow with his deadlines i don't know maybe they wanted to 
get a couple issues in the can before they started publishing it. And so it was taking a while to do several books. But this, this is the only is... issue he ever does. Oh, really? Yeah. No, it goes to, I think, Joe Orlando after this for like two or three months and maybe someone else, too, before then Wally Wood comes on. No, this See, is I don't know. This is the only book that we'll be doing every month or every other month that I've never read before. So I have no idea what's coming up. No, this is a terrible tease because I am just blown over by this art. And then after this, we'd have three or four or five months of some. And, you know, I know Joe Orlando has done some great stuff from time to time, but I have never really been exposed to the stuff that he uh, has a good reputation for, except the uh, Sea Monkeys ad. That's the one piece of his art <laughs> that I love. We get a few months of him just not turning in good work for the next few months. And yeah, this is just such a tease. Let me see. Next issue. Next issue. Story Stanley, Art Joe Orlando, inking Vince Galetta. So we're a little, little preview. <laughs> we're about to get the arrival of Vince Galetta. That looks terrible. This yeah. is awful. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I did not realize that Bill Everett only ever did one issue. Well, it is a tease because this is very good. Yeah. And he, uh, it's, it's a weird, bizarre throwback. It's an odd appearance of this Will Eisner esque art inserted into the Marvel Universe <laughs> and then left high and dry. And this is a book that I don't think Stan Lee ever loved. And it's a book that clearly Bill Everett didn't love enough to stay with. In the Marvel The Untold Storybook, they say that Bill Everett was not happy at all with the Marvel method and to what degree he was expected to write the book. And things just didn't work out. But I not realized it falls apart so quickly. But eventually we're going to get Wally Wood, who's a great penciler. And we're going to get John Romano, who's a great penciler. And Gene Colan, who's a great penciler. I don't realize we're going to have Joe Orlando for a while. Okay, let's uh, dive into <laughs> that next time. Meanwhile, I think you were looking forward to doing Fantastic Four here. But why don't you go ahead and do this one? Okay, let's go and do Fantastic Four number 25. This is the big one, The Incredible Hulk versus The Thing. Of course, they already fought once before. They already fought in issue 13, but it yeah. wasn't really portrayed as like, this is an issue in which the Hulk fights the Thing. That was sort of an issue in which there was sort of an incidental fight between the Hulk and the Thing, and it was never really one-on-one. -on -one. And so they've decided here, even though he got his book canceled, he's become a bigger and bigger part of the Marvel Universe and a persistent guest star. I don't think we've had a single month or at least a single cycle of issues, given that some are bi-monthly without the Hulk appearing. And now they're just starting to have two-issue stories. And we're about to begin a huge two-issue story in the Fantastic Four that is entirely devoted to a huge slugfest between the Hulk and the Thing. Clearly, they're starting to go like, okay, these are our two big Marvel powerhouses. And this is what the readers really want to see is this big fight. Before we get into it, I just want to say, in this issue, you are not going to have to argue with me about George Bell's inking. Good. So <laughs> we begin the issue with Sensational Story by Stanley, Astonishing Art by Jackery, Incredible Inking by G. Bell. Not exactly a lighthearted lettering well, by S. Frozen. Well, it, it is incredible, as, as, as in <laughs> it has no credibility. Barely credible art by George Bell. <laughs> So Reed is trying to force Ben to drink a formula to cure him. Ben at this point is just flat out like, no, I do not want to be cured. Don't do that. Alicia won't love me anymore. Terrible George Bell inking. The art looks awful. Thing looks like a swamp monster of some sort. I'm almost wondering if Stan or someone else came to George Bell and was like, look, you're inking the thing too rocky. He's supposed to be lumpy. And so then George Bell like just went back in after the fact and just went to all these like feather lines that he half-heartedly did. I mean, I'm just making this up, but that's, that's what it looks like. Yes. Meanwhile, Sue is reading in the paper about Avengers return to U.S., seek Hulk after epic battle overseas. We cut to out west and we get the Hulk acting more villainous 
than he's ever acted before. He has left a giant rock in a road to make a truck stop. And then he tells the truck drivers, I want to lift. Let me ride in your truck and I'll let you live. And they're like, <laughs> okay. And then he empties all the stuff out of the truck and is riding in the back of the truck, becomes Banner. The truck stops at a roadblock, but Bruce Banner runs out of the back, becomes a Hulk again. So then even though we're reading the Fantastic Four, the Avengers show up to find that all the stuff Hulk has thrown out of the truck. So Rick Jones is there and it's like, he must be hiding in a secret underground lab. Wait, what did I say? And like, lab, <laughs> you make him sound like a scientist, Rick. It's like, don't ask me anymore. I can't tell you. I've sworn never to reveal a secret, no matter what. So Rick has been sidekick in the Avengers book, but is still loyal to the Hulk over the Avengers. We then get to the Hulk trashing his lab. But then he finds a newspaper and says, he mentions the Avengers. They've replaced me with someone named Captain America. That's why Rick isn't here. He's deserved me too, but no one does that to the Hulk. I'll go back to New York. I'll destroy the Avengers forever. So he goes to New York to destroy the Avengers. We see him leaping across country. And he shows up in New York just when Reed Richards is sick. Reed Richards has been working with viruses. I get the feeling that was part of his coming up with the formula for Ben, was ah. that it had to do with this work with the viruses, that he stumbled upon this thing that says, this will cure you for good. He says, I don't know, kid, but he's in a coma and he feels like he's burned with fever. And Johnny says, he's been working with viruses, I wonder. Reed collapses sick, but meanwhile, the Hulk attacks town. Johnny runs out and tries to fight him. He quickly dispatches with Johnny. At this point, they're all worried. Is Reed too sick to leave? But at this point, Ben goes out. Well, I guess Sue actually goes out next and saves Johnny with a force field and spirits him away. And then Ben comes out. And Ben and the Hulk get in a bit of a fight. They get into <laughs> the first really huge knockdown dragout fight in Marvel history. Kirby is drawing the hell out of it. George Bell is then turning it into a living hell. He is doing terrible inking, but of course, since it is a Kirby fight, we have to have someone throwing tires. We have had many instances so far in the Marvel Universe of people throwing tires. It happens again. There's a great bit on page 14 where the thing is hanging onto a building and the Hulk rocks the whole building back and forth with the thing on it. <laughs> we also get something that has happened before in Kirby comics that involves reaching into the ground and pulling out electrical wires, which gives Penn a bit of a reprieve when the Hulk gets shocked that way. Reed, meanwhile, is too sick to stand, but is watching the fight on TV. And it's like, no, Ben's doing it all wrong. If only I could go tell him. <laughs> we then get a bizarre bit with the Yancey Street gang, tries to shove a truck into the Hulk, thinking it will just knock the Hulk out of the way. But no, of course, it knocks them both out of the way because they're grappling at the time. Knocks them both into the water. We then get the second, I think of three times this month, where our heroes are fighting on a speedboat. Our heroes, which is to say our hero and our villain, Ben and the Hulk, are fighting on an out-of-control boat as similar to the fight in Spider-Man. They then go up onto, presumably this is the George Washington Bridge. They are fighting up there. And the Hulk, while treading water, he then is able to leap up several stories high from the water. Yes. And then Ben, in the very next panel, is ripping up parts of the main vertical structures of the bridge. <laughs> but then Ben, well, Ben continues to rip up the bridge because then he tangles up the Hulk in the suspension oh, right. cables. Not a good day to be the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> So then basically that's where we leave things off. They're continuing to beat the hell out of each other. And then they say, think you've seen action and drama so far. Wait till you see the wrap up next issue. The enraged thing tackles the bizarre cock again. Just for added thrills, the Avengers join the battle. It's merely the greatest. I think that this is fan service, the comic. I think that this is the most fan servicey issue of the Fantastic Four we've had so far. They're like, we know what you want. You want our two big powerhouses to beat the crap out of each other for 20 pages. And that's what you're going to get. And I think it is delightful. I think that 
it is ruined oh, yeah. by terrible inking, but it is a really fun issue that is fan service at its best. So on page 21, that huge panel that takes up the bottom, like two thirds of the page, mm-hmm. is it just me or is the Hulk played by Carl Malden? <laughs> yeah, it's got sort of a Malden-esque nose. That's definitely Carl Malden. <laughs> it's so tragic reading this issue because the last huge superpower group fights the Hulk issue we were in was Avengers number three. And it was so gorgeously inked by Paul Reinman in such a beautiful fight. Now, after seeing the Avengers fight the Hulk for 20 pages inked by Reinman, to see the Fantastic Four fight the Hulk for 20 pages inked by George Bell, it's a heartbreaker. Yeah. I want to also point out that the soldiers were at one point talking about the pros and cons of actually using a nuclear bomb to take out the Hulk here yes. in Manhattan. <laughs> a concern that continues right up to the first Avengers movie. So this is baked into the Marvel print universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a willingness to nuke bad guys who come to Manhattan. All right, so we have done Amazing Spider-Man, Daredevil, Fantastic Four. It is time for Journey into Mystery with Thor. So we are going to meet the Enchantress and the Executioner in this one. This is the actual Executioner, not the communist dictator that we met, you know, many months ago in Thor. This is a villain who will be a regular villain for decades to come. Uh, And will show up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Unlike the Enchantress, who shockingly has never shown up in the MCU. But her sidekick, the Executioner, has and was wonderfully portrayed in Thor Ragnarok by Carl Urban. Amor the Enchantress has never shown up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know. We're recording this for a couple weeks out from Thor 4 opening. We'll see if we get her in there. I don't know where the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show falls in terms of canon at this point. But the Enchantress's sister, Lorelai, showed up in the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. Ah, I didn't know that. So we are going to meet these two villains. Uh, We begin with Thor returning himself to current day. And by current day, I mean 1964 from the time of Zarko. Uh, So I should say this is written by Stanley, Master of Fantasy, illustrated by Jack Kirby, Master of Pictodrama, inked by Chick Stone. So we have our second issue inked by Chick Stone, who, again, does a great job. Yes, I am a fan of Chickstone's inks on Kirby in general and in this issue in particular. Thor shows up and he's exhausted from his space-time travel uh, and he just ends up in the middle of traffic in Manhattan. Policeman has to come over and be like, hey, buddy, you're causing a traffic jam. He takes off, turns back into Don Blake, goes back into his office as Don Blake, still exhausted, and he falls asleep, and Jane comes in. He's like, oh, poor dear, must have been on call all night. So she makes up a little sofa for him and tucks him in. Cut to Asgard, and we see Odin wearing a relatively fabulous helmet. One of the things I noticed that Kirby likes is he likes having characters wearing eye-covering masks, even when there is no reason for them to have eye-covering masks. But one of the ones that bothers me the most is when months later we're going to get to Black Bolt. And he's like, you're king of your people. Why are you masked? Anyway, but in this case, it's very similar. Odin, you're king of Asgard. Why are you covering your face? So then uh, Loki says to Odin, who is still worrying that Thor has a thing for Jane. He's like, how am I going to get my stupid son to drop this terrible girlfriend he has? Uh, And Loki says, I actually have a plan for that. So he goes and recruits the Enchantress, 
Once again, Kirby seems to be uh, using a lot of model reference with his shots of the Enchantress. He's really going to town on making her into this va-va-voom sex symbol type. He does. You know, I've never found Sue to be genuinely sexy. I, you know, I realize I'm supposed to find Sue sexy. And like you said, she sometimes does sort of sexy girl poses. I've never found her very sexy. Generally speaking, just haven't found anyone in the Marvel Universe to be very sexy. This is the first, like, she is a genuinely sexy character. When we meet Amora the Enchantress here, I don't think she's called Amora yet in this issue. She's just called the Enchantress. On the cover, she looked like the traditional Enchantress we know and love. She's wearing an all-green costume. Here, her costume is pink and green. And I don't find that to be a fetching combination. But if you ignore the fact that the costume is pink, I assume it's pink in your issue as well. Uh, I would call it magenta, but yeah. If you ignore the garish combination of magenta and green, I think she's hella sexy. Yeah, which is part of the very point of the character here. That is her primary power is to enchant men and to get them to do things that she wants them to do. I am her victim. (laughs) She shows up in New York and gets herself dressed up in American Manhattan hot woman finery, looking very much like uh, Marilyn Monroe. She then shows up at Dr. Blake's office. Jane says, doctor, this lady wants to see you. She wouldn't give her name. She says, my name is of no importance. You may leave us now, nurse. She is trying to get Don Blake to look at her so that he can be enchanted or ensorcelled by her beauty, which is her power. He is just not really making eye contact with her. He's like, whatever. Enchantress finally shoves her face in his face. He recognizes her, but then she pretends to fall so that he will catch her. And then as Jane walks in, she kisses Don Blake on the mouth and Jane goes storming out. I think this is what they would call at the time, they're in the clinch. (laughs) Okay. Enchantress is a little surprised to find that Thor even though he is in his Don Blake persona, still has the strength of character to resist her charms. So she goes back to uh, Asgard and recruits the Executioner, who we later find is named Scourge. And he's got a really sort of weird look. I mean, he's got this squared off helmet that he wears with a couple of horns. But then under that, he basically is wearing a bunch of guy liner and has, <laughs> I don't know whether that's hair or whether that's some kind of tattoo markings that come forward from behind the ears and sort of point down towards his eyes. But he has a I very... think it's supposed to be weird as hair. And I think when Carl Urban played the character, too, I think it was supposed to be weird as hair there, too. And it works fine. Unlike in the Inhumans TV show, what they try to do with Crystal's hair. <laughs> I never saw it. And please don't. (laughs) It's it's the worst. Anyway, uh, Enchantress comes and recruits him to be part of the plan to waylay Don Blake, basically. So she's going to be using her feminine wiles, and he is going to then kidnap the woman who he truly loves. And so hopefully that can be a one-two punch to knock him out of being in love with Jane, of course. See, I'm not sure she's planning on being part of it at all anymore. No? Well, she says, so long as Jane Foster lives, Thor will never succumb to my charms. And so the only solution is Jane Foster must not live. But at this point, she's out of it. She's like, okay, I'm tagging out. I'm just going to send him down to... Well, it's interesting. She, even though his name is the Executioner and his signature object is a big-ass axe, she's never is like, go kill Jane Foster. She's like, (laughs) I wish him never to be able to set eyes on her again. 
you would think if this was like a Thomas Cromwell type situation that he would go like, okay, girl, you want me to kill her? But he has his own creative interpretation of this phrase. Who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? Did I mention that I was a medieval history uh, major in college? (laughs) I'm I'm glad you picked up on my reference. Yeah, well, Cromwell was someone else. I mean, this was... Oh, right. um, I always get those confused. It was Beckett. I always get Beckett and Cromwell mixed up. Yeah, so I I thought there was something else you were referring to with Cromwell. Yes. So everybody else out there is like, what the hell are they talking about? (laughs) We were talking about comic books. So basically, this whole job has been subcontracted out several times at this point. So Odin (laughs) wants this girlfriend out of the picture. So then Loki says, I can do it for you. And Loki goes and recruits the Enchantress. And the Enchantress has now gone and recruited the Executioner to do the job. So here we once again have the police commissioner. I'd forgotten how much they had the police commissioner in New York showing up in these early Marvel comics. It is not something that really survived into later stuff. So I think it's just been forgotten. But Thor goes to the commissioner and um, see, why does he go to the commissioner? So he's trying to track down Jane and he can't find her. So he wants to issue an all points bulletin for Jane. There we go. Thank you very much. The commissioner says, well, I can't deal with that right now, but I just received a call. It might be right up your alley. There's an eight foot tall character in strange armor carrying a huge battle axe causing panic among the people. And Thor immediately figures out this is the execution, tells the police commissioner to get everyone out of the way. He heads out to take care of the executioner himself. The executioner is able to just walk around Manhattan until he happens to see Jane Foster. Because as anyone who's ever walked around Manhattan knows, you know, you're going to run into everybody in Manhattan during that walk. At some point, you're going to see everybody uh, within a 10 minute walk. It's just amazing. It's really a small town. Uh, so he then uses his battle axe to do some sort of magic where he can essentially tear open a rift in time and space. And instead of executing Jane Foster, he banishes her to, um, what is it? The river sticks. Sorry. That's, that's the wrong mythology. Limbo. Limbo where we've already spent some time in the Marvel universe. Yes. Limbo where the, uh, space phantom has already been using limbo and we will be seeing much more of limbo throughout the decades. So yes, she is just banished to limbo. Thor shows up, engages the executioner in battle. They have a nifty fight scene. The big problem with having someone fight with an axe in the Marvel universe is that you have an unofficial no blood rule and right. axes and blood tend to go together. So instead, he's doing odd things. He says, do not underestimate me, Thunder God. Remember, my battle axe still possesses the power to slash through space, as it now does to bring the frost from Earth's Arctic regions. So he slashes a cut in the air that opens up a little tunnel to the Arctic and freezes Thor. So this is an odd an odd axe. I kind of like it in that it's like, yeah, it looks like a big battle axe, but it's actually got these powers that make the axeness of it almost ancillary that yeah. really can do all this other magical sort of stuff they have this big fight scene eventually scourge just says oh okay hold on let's stop here i've got your girl stashed away somewhere you can't find her if you want to ever see her again you gotta let me have your hammer <laughs> and thor is like well you know without my hammer i'm gonna become don blake again but i can't let jane foster go so Yes, I will go ahead and give it to you. Executioner, of course, stupidly brings her back before getting the hammer. (laughs) Right. This should be one of those like same time, I don't know you sort of situations. (laughs) Jane comes back, then Thor hands the executioner the hammer. And of course, it falls to the ground and the executioner can't pick it up. And he's like, oh, that's right. I forgot. No one else can hold the hammer. Man, that was dumb. 
So then the Enchantress is upset that he said, no, you're supposed to go and make sure that he can never lay eyes on Jane again. But then as soon as you were like, hey, give me your hammer and I'll go ahead and give you Jane back. That's fine with me. I just want your hammer. So the Enchantress is aware of this and is not happy with it and starts turning his feet into trees. So the arms are basically like branches. And it's once again, this sort of horror-ish image here that's yeah. quite affecting. One of the first Marvel comics I ever read, I think it was it was Dazzler number one or number two. <laughs> one of the first scenes was someone has climbed up to the Enchantress's palace to gaze upon her loveliness. And she's like, oh, you want to worship me? I'm going to turn into a tree so you can always give me a little shade. And she turns this smitten guy into a tree. And this was very disturbing to me as a kid. Mm. I'm like, oh, this is what happens when you're like attracted to a woman. This is very disturbing <laughs> and weird. And I've got a long traumatic history with enchanters turning people into trees. And this fits nicely into that long traumatic history. It is disturbing and creepy. Yes. And then the Enchantress shows back up in a poof of smoke with her distracting the executioner. Uh, he is able to get his hands back on the hammer with seconds to spare before he turns back into Don Blake. Uh, not that him turning back and forth between Don Blake and Thor have ever led anyone to suspect anything between them in the past. The Enchantress is once again trying to use her powers of ensorcelment, let's just call it, on Thor, and it is not working. Meanwhile, the executioner is starting to revert back to himself from his weird treeness. Thor just says, you know what, I am done with both of you. And kind of like you were talking about earlier, instead of just creating a typhoon that goes ahead and takes the villain away, he does basically the same thing, but it's a magical typhoon that takes them back over the Rainbow Bridge to Asgard. We don't really see what happens to them, but we do see that Odin becomes aware that Don Blake is still in love with Jane. And he is not happy. Uh, and the very last panel is him with his fists in the air and just energy crackling around him. In a couple of years, that would be Kirby Crackle. But yeah, it's funny. Happen. Kirby Crackle doesn't really exist yet, does it? No, it does not. But th this looks almost sort of like proto Kirby Crackle in some way. But yeah, it's definitely not it yet. There we go. And then Odin says... By Asgard, my son may not love a mortal. Thor may not defy his father, Odin. The time for words is past. Now I must act. And they say, see what happens. But Odin himself opposes mighty Thor. That's sort of a pseudo cliffhanger leading into the next issue. Odin's mercurial nature is being highlighted a little bit more here. And I love the introduction of these two longstanding villains that we are going to have, Enchantress and the Executioner. They will, I think, both occasionally skirt back and forth between villainousness and goodness, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, very much so. I know that Executioner has a very heroic moment in Walt Simonson's run of Thor, which is then depicted as well in the third Thor movie. I think this is just an amazing issue. It's so great to have Kirby back on the book as penciler and more importantly as co-potter. And he loves getting into the Norse myths, although here they are adding to the Norse myths. They're like, we love the Norse myths, but you know what? That we can improve on them. You know, these are characters who are not from Norse myths, but are great elements of Asgard that are here to stay from now on. And we'll get a tremendous number of absolutely fantastic comics out of these characters over the years, starting with this issue. I think this is a tremendously fun issue. I think it's a sexy issue. I think it is just a lot of fun to read. Yes, I always get a little annoyed when Thor just creates the typhoon and whips everybody away at the end of the story, but I'm willing to forget it this time. So then we're going to get to Tales of Asgard. Essentially, it's the creation of mankind myth here. 
theoretically, that means that mankind did not exist yet during all of the Thor's youth stories that we've been getting so far. But we get some great shots here of Thor interacting with the dwarfs. And of course, here they are dwarf-sized. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one of the Asgardian dwarfs is portrayed by Peter Dinklage, and he is dwarf-proportioned, but giant-size. Yeah. A a neat take on things. We see this wonderful depiction of the not real-life little people, but the mythological little people called dwarves. We see Thor on a Viking ship, which takes him off to uh, the land where... um, He's trying to find King Mirmir. M-I-R, M-I-R. We have some great shots of Thor trying to make it through this enchanted island to King Mirmir. There is a wonderful panel of a boar-headed creature coming out of some giant grass grasping at Thor, which is just really, really well done. Then the second panel of that encounter, the very last panel of uh, page three of this Tales of Asgard story, I just find that an incredible incredibly dynamic and energetic panel yeah i love the way it's composed i love the way it's inked the coloring does well it's just red yellow and white on a gray lane it's just really fantastic yeah thor finally makes it to king mirmir he brings this splinter of, of the earth tree yggdrasil then they end up making from this uh, essentially a couple of trees that look strange they look in this odd image and they end up turning into a Norse myths version of Adam and Eve. Now, I have no idea if this has anything to do with the Norse creation myth of how mankind was created. Before we started reading all these Thor comics, we should have each been forced to read the Prosetta or Neil Gaiman's book on Norse mythology or something so that we would know to what degree they're just pulling this stuff out of their ass and to what degree this is actually from Norse myths. But we have it, so we have no idea. But yes, he creates Aska and Elba, A-S-K-E and E-M-B-L-A, so Aska and Embla, maybe, who are the Norse version of Adam and Eve. A couple of interesting things about this issue. How does Thor travel through space? Do they have rocket ships in Asgard? That doesn't seem right. So instead, he gets, for the first time, the dwarf gives him a little flying Viking ship, which then will get lots of use in Thor comics, especially in the 70s, where they have a great like 12-issue epic of him flying through space on his little flying Viking ship. It's sort of splitting the difference because there's always a big issue with Thor of to what degree is this a sci-fi comic and to what degree is this fantasy comic. Kirby kind of draws Asgard in a sci-fi type way to the extent where they could turn the movies essentially into sci-fi movies and it didn't seem entirely out of place. But even in the movies in Thor The Dark World, they're flying through the air on a sort of flying Viking ship type thing. Another interesting issue with Thor that they've grappled with over the years is how old is he? Because at one point they make it clear, I think when Roy Thomas was writing the book, that Thor is about 2,000 years old, that he was born around the same time as the birth of Christ. This is clearly not the case here. Right. Thor is older than mankind itself. They would grapple with that over the years. So uh, we will have to live with those contradictions as things go on. Yes. Overall, a uh, good issue of Thor. If I had plunked down my 12 cents for this as a kid in 1964, I would have been happy with my purchase. Yes, certainly. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into Strange Tales 119. So once again, they're still not willing to show Doctor Strange on the cover. If all you know about Marvel Comics is what you see on the newsstand, you've still never seen Doctor Strange, but they actually have... Last month, we saw a picture of him, but just one. Oh, did they show a picture of him on the cover? Yeah, just a little banner on the bottom said Doctor Strange, and you saw a picture of him. But that was it. 
But here it says second great feature of Doctor Strange in Beyond the Purple Veil. And it's just got a picture of a little purple bubbling test tube without a picture of Doctor Strange. The main thing is it shows the Human Torch against someone with a very interesting fashion sense called the Rapple Rouser wearing this. I, would that be a dashiki? Uh, it's, <laughs> it might look sort of South American like kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah like a Baja or something uh, with a jaunty scarf on top of it. But he's holding a sort of sci-fi magic wand type thing, sending a sort of mind bolt at the Human Torch. Written by Stanley, drawn by Dick Ayers, lettered by S. Rosen. We've talked before about how Ayers doesn't really get much chance to shine penciling this book, but we've begun with a very dramatic splash page of Johnny sort of filling up the page as he's sort of on a rampage across the city. People are talking on the street like, oh, why is Johnny rampaging? And they're like, oh, didn't you hear all these terrible things have been happening to him? It says, I read it in the gossip columns. His girlfriend, Doris Evans, jilted him for some other guy. They say the torch saw red when he found out. So Doris Evans with the new date. The date is going, forget that flaming fool, Doris. Where shall we go tonight? And that's one of the reasons I read on the sports page. They did make the school football team because the coach was scared he'd hurt somebody. Says, Sorry, torch, you're too dangerous. It's not only that, the society section reported that Sue Storm, Reed Richards, and The Thing took a brief vacation and left the torch home because they felt he shouldn't miss school. By the way, I'm already spending way too much time on this issue, and we didn't set a clock. We should set a (laughs) five-minute clock on this issue. Should I just set it for four minutes at this point since you've already been going for a little bit? (laughs) I'll give you the full five. I'll give you the full five. Okay, there we go. Okay, five minutes counting down now. So he's also upset about reading about Spider-Man in the paper, but the thing he's most upset about is that there is this guy called the Rabble Rouser, this interestingly clothed guy, even though he's a white guy with a big handlebar mustache. Um, he has and been massive eyebrows. Massive eyebrows. He has been giving speeches saying, I tell you, the torch is a menace. He's a flaming viper in our midst. Open your eyes. Use your head. Can't you see what's happening? Spider-Man stops by to commiserate with the torch, but the torch isn't having any of it. Police officer comes by and tells the torch that the Rabble Rouser has changed the Overton window, moved the needle. Now the torch has been outlawed. It's now legal for him to flame on. So the torch does flame on, but leaves New York City to have some time to think. Second time we've seen the George Washington Bridge this week as he flies away over the George Washington Bridge. It turns out that the Rabble Rouser, oh yeah, he says, little did they dream, I'm really an undercover red agent with a complete dossier on all the enemies of dictatorship. If I'm successful, I too shall be rewarded with a position of power in some puppet nation. I might even become another Castro. Let me jump in real quick. A really weird thing on the bottom of page five, last panel. That panel was clearly photostatted and blown up from something. There is no reason Uh. why his face should be cropped that way. And those brush strokes are too big and I have no idea why. I'm guessing there must have been something else in the panel that they decided to get rid of and they just didn't have time to do anything. So they just photostatted it. It really sticks out to me like a sore thumb. So the, the rabble rouser is talking again. He thinks the fools, how easy it is to convince them that black is white, or should I say red. So then we see that he has the burrowing device that the hate monger used to have. He decides one of the many things he's not a fan of is giving aid to other nations, which was a big hot button topic at the time since we must stop giving foreign aid to other nations we must not squander our money when prince nakamo visits city hall today we must tell him to go home so presumably this is japanese but they don't say japanese he then bursts out of the ground in his ship prince nakamo is touring the city in a convertible he sucks him out of the back of the convertible and goes back down into the ground human torch is like well i can't do anything about it i'm not allowed to flame on anymore and then the mayor in his top hat yes. mascot and three-piece suit course. says, uh, dude, I'm going to go ahead and give you special permission. You can flame on and go chasing after the guy. Goes and finds him in a subway tunnel. 
is fighting him. The guy's about to defeat him when then Prince Nagamo himself comes out and throws a rock and knocks the magic wand out of the rebel rouser's hand. First, he uses the magic wand on the rebel rouser himself until the rebel rouser says, I love America. <laughs> the rebel rouser is no more. He then melts the wand. And so now everything's taken care of. And then Dory takes him back, says, don't you like a happy ending? We do too. And she says, oh, Johnny, dear, I only did it that other boy to make you jealous. But now that I've seen what a temper you have, I'll never do it again. <clears throat> Remember, kids, girls love a guy who shows a big temper. That's that's the number one way to a girl's heart. And who scares her from not leaving. <laughs> it's just like, oh, yes. oh, boy, no, that's not okay. <laughs> Wrapped up in under five minutes. Decent art by Dick Harris. Not fantastic. An okay story. Not a villain for the ages. Fairly forgettable. I noticed that when he is hypnotized with his own thing into now being a loyal American, he still has relatively big eyebrows and a mustache, but they are not nearly as wild and out of control as they were when he was an active red agent. (laughs) Yes. Something about communism causes your manscaping to just go out of control. Let's go ahead and do Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange dares to go beyond the Purple Veil. We got an excellent story here. Frequently, Doctor Strange just has the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's a guy who is just constantly knitting his brow. He's sitting here. He's in his office. He says, I can't stop now. Not till I learn all the secrets of this sinister gem. He can't figure out what's going on with this mystic gem he's holding. And meanwhile, crooks break into his sanctum sanctorum, are looking for stuff to steal. He's like, uh, dudes, you picked the wrong house to steal wraps him up in a ball of energy and dumps him back out on the street. He then gives up on setting the gem, thinks he's dealt with the crooks once and for all, goes to sleep. The crooks are like, "Uh, dude, we're just going to break right back in. We don't care how magic you are. Of course, they see the gem and they're like, "Uh, that we're going to steal and we're going to take it back. At this point, Doctor Strange realizes what's been going on, follows them back. Well, first with his astral form and then I guess with his physical form, goes back to where the dudes live and he just sees the smoking gem and they have touched the gem and been drawn into beyond the purple veil into a dark alien dimension. And he has to now go rescue their silly asses. So then he goes and I think that Dicko does a better job here of walking the fine line between having bug-eyed aliens that look too much like aliens and people who are clearly in another mystical dimension they do look kind of like green bug-eyed aliens but this is clearly not a sci-fi story they're in a mystical dimension dr strange says let the two crooks go and i will take their place so a true hero here even though they these were bad guys who were trying to rob him he agrees to take their place in the dark dimension if they are released they are released (laughs) and then dr strange just is like i promise to take their place as a captive i made no (laughs) promise to remain a captive now though you have shackled me our battle really begins he opens up his amulet melts the shackles one of these you know it's always a little bit lame in dr strange comics when they just have a big battle of two people shooting beams up against each other and bouncing off each other and there can always be a little bit of a sense of lack of martial (laughs) contact in these dr strange books so then they have a battle of the beams the other guy is more powerful and is going to win but he's too cowardly he says enough you have won i must not die i surrender and it's been and it's been a long time. It's just many minutes have passed of them just like shooting their beams at each other. But then Doctor Strange thinks Agamon was stronger than I. He could have held that longer, but his own cowardice betrays him. Strange comes back, finds out that the two crooks have confessed and gone to jail. Strange says, I shall keep my many faceted gem. And if ever again I am needed beyond the purple veil, I shall be ready. 
So I think this is an excellent issue. Dicko draws the hell out of it. Absolutely gorgeously penciled and especially inked by Dicko. I think it's a nice little story about what it means to be a hero and sacrificing yourself for the very villains who are attempting to rob you. He then backs out of this deal in not necessarily the most honorable way. It's amazing how short these issues are. This is an eight-page story that is just packed full of drama and quality and gorgeous art. Two other comments, both about page three. One, I believe this is the first time that Wong is named. No, no, he was named before. He was? Okay, never mind. The other thing is the first time I glanced through this, I was thinking that the burglars came right back in as soon as they were kicked out. But it does say the next evening. Oh, I thought it was the same night. Okay. I'm going to Google Dr. Strange Wong first name. Oh, you're right. It says here he is the sidekick and valet of Doctor Strange, the sorcerer's favorite. Earth. Wong first appeared in the comic book Strange Tales 110, but was unnamed until Strange Tales 119. There you go. All there right. You go. I was right. Who knew? So we now move on to Tales of Suspense. We have the return of the Crimson Dynamo and also introducing the Black Widow. Again, a character that will go on to be a vital force in global pop culture to this very day. And she is a very different character when she's first introduced. Yes. Of all the future MCU characters we've met so far, she is the one who is most radically, totally different from the eventual MCU version we will come to know and love. One interesting thing, the credits on this say plot by Stan Lee, story by N. Korok, which if that's not a pseudonym, I don't know what is. (laughs) I think that he's like, wait. We got to give you a pseudonym. I'm going to take the name that I was going to use for a Doctor Strange villain, and I'm going to give it to you. So you're going to be N. Korok. I was reading this issue, and I'm like, what the hell? Who the hell is N. Korok? Wouldn't I have noticed? And now that I've watched all these Black Widow movies, is she not credited as being co-created by Stan Lee and Don Heck? No. I did not go back and check the credits for the Black Widow movie, but according to the official Marvel credits, it says Black Widow created by Stan Lee, Don Rico, and Don Heck. So N. Korok is apparently the supervillain name of Don Rico, D-O-N-R-I-C-O. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, yeah, I have read the name Don Rico in that little thing they have at the end of Marvel movies and TV shows saying who created the characters, but they never say who created what. And I've always wondered who the hell Don Rico was. Well, it's so strange because Stan has been scripting all of the books recently. This is very unusual to have a book not scripted. It is, although over the coming months between now and when he finally finds Roy Thomas, Iron Man is the book where you'll occasionally see him trying out other folks. There are going to be other issues coming up here with one-off scripters that generally tend to do an awful job. I didn't notice it really jumping out at me as awful on this one. but No, it's not uh, terrible. Meanwhile, uh, do you want to set a timer on me here? You can set your own timer. Or uh, I okay. Can. All right. Yeah, yeah. We don't trust each. <laughs> we don't trust ourselves. No, I'm doing okay, it. I've already got it going. No, okay. no I've got it. Right. 455, 6, well, it's 455. Both are going to go off at the same time. So Crimson Dynamo strikes again. Now, last time we saw the Crimson Dynamo was a good guy now. He had defected to America because Tony Stark had showed him that Khrushchev was going to betray him. He is still using his Crimson Dynamo armor basically as shielding from dangerous experiments. And he is doing uh, some work with laser light. Now, one of the things I do for a living is I run the laser department at my local makerspace. So there's this little editor's note at the bottom of panel two on page two that says the laser light appears in parallel photon rays of equal force, not diffused like ordinary light. 
If a way could be found to handle such a dangerous light safely, it would be the perfect weapon, and it could burn through anything. So this is one of the few times that Stan, presumably, since this is editor's note, actually looked something up scientific, because that is exactly right. There is nothing wrong with that statement. Amazing. So I'm like, wow, he must have just picked up an issue of Popular Mechanics or something like that. And, you know, oh, yeah, here we go. Tony Stark sees Vanko in his Crimson Dynamo armor doing some experimenting down on the factory floor, uh, but he sees that he is going to use himself as a guinea pig with the laser light. So then he pulls a Tarzan. He like grabs some sort of cable <laughs> and goes swinging down to pull Vanko out of the way of the laser. Yes, I saw I had in my notes here. Is he Tarzan all of a sudden? What is going on? Yeah, so Tony, Tony rescues him. Flip to Moscow. And we see Khrushchev talking about what he's going to do about Vanko, saying the traitor. He has joined the Americans. He must be eliminated. This is a job for the Black Widow and the man known as Boris. So, of course, we're about to find out that the Black Widow's name is Natasha. So they started out as just a Rocky and Bullwinkle joke. Yeah. I mean, Rocky and Bullwinkle were going strong at this point, right? Yeah, I think so. Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. We see her for the first time. She is wearing this uh, dark dress with a spiderweb veil sort of thing over her decolletage and a little veil over her eyes. So she's got curly brown hair. She's got opera gloves. She could not look less like the Black Widow we know and what. She does not have the straight red hair. She is not wearing spandex, has no martial prowess whatsoever, doesn't attempt to beat anybody up in any way. She's just more of a Mata Hari type character. She has no weapons. She's, you know, a woman who wears suits and fancy stuff and enjoys seducing men. There's not even a smidgen of Scarlett Johansson. And then meanwhile, Boris is just super strong. I don't know if he's super strong, but he's very strong. They are then taken to America in a Soviet sub and show up in Stark's factory and somehow are able to be given a tour by Stark as foreign visitors. Seems like very poor security. I think that Happy should be doing a better job protecting the, uh, protecting the plant. But Tony Stark walks in and he's like, oh, va-va-voom, who are you? I will show you around, no problem. Boris then is able to fake his way into the room where Vanko is working, confronts him and hits him with some super science ray rather than just shooting him or you know, stabbing with an ice pick or whatever it was that would actually happen. Burying an axe in his head. Well, no, it wasn't Trotsky an ice pick. Ice pick. That's what I meant to say. Burying an ice oh, pick. Oh, man, I am so, I'm so not getting it done here. <laughs> All right. We are meeting a major character in this issue. So we have been treating it with its proper respect and gravity. So do you want another five minutes? No, that's okay. I, can you turn off your timer, though? I've given you another five minutes. Boris has used one of the weapons that Vanko had originally created for the Soviets against him. And so he's now been somehow wrapped up in this little net. Boris starts playing a reel-to-reel tape of Vanko giving a lecture in Moscow in the past. So that then when he comes out of the door carrying Vanko in a bag over his shoulder, the guard is like, hey, what's what, where are you going to that package? It's like, oh, I'm delivering it for Vanko. You can check with him, but he might not want to be interrupted in the middle of a lecture. So many things are just not right about this. First of all, who is he lecturing to? He was in there alone. Everybody knows he was in there alone. Like, what? And then the other thing is, 
presumably this lecture was originally in Russian. <laughs> but once again, yes. everybody in the Marvel Universe just speaks English. It's just a matter of whether you have an accent or not. Yeah. Boris then is able to steal the Crimson Dynamo armor itself and goes ahead and puts it on. He starts wrecking Tony's equipment. Tony, meanwhile, isn't there to pay much attention to this because he's off whining and dining Natasha. He's coming back to his factory and saying, oh, no, what's going on? Says, uh, don't come closer, you know, Natasha. It could be dangerous. I'll have to leave you here. So, of course, he's got to go off and become Iron Man. We see that then, Happy is one then, of the ones. So, obviously, they're going to redeem this character. But it's going to take a while to redeem her. And, you know, he's saying, like, I'll have to leave you here. And she thinks to herself, what a glorious sight. Stark's plant is in an inferno. And then he does think to himself, what a cold woman she is. So unmoved by all this excitement. She is nowhere near redemption. No, 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 no. She is just an evil Soviet spy at this point. Tony Stark turns back into Iron Man, busts into his burning factory, and finds Crimson Dynamo. And he, of course, thinks this is Vonko, and he thinks that Vonko needs rescuing. So then he's like, you don't want to leave the laser machine, eh? Okay, I'll help you and get it out of here. So then Boris is like, oh, I'll just wait until he's lifted this big heavy thing up, and he can't do anything, and then I'll zap him. Hits him with an electric charge. Iron Man falls unconscious is taken off by the Soviets and later wakes up. He has no idea where. He has been out of electricity for a while, so his heart is about to die. Uh, he is able to wire himself up <laughs> to a light bulb outlet. Uh, and then he <laughs> finds Vonko in the next room, still tied up. He rescues him and flies off from wherever it was that the Soviets had him stashed. Uh, I guess some sort of Soviet safe house somewhere. Iron Man comes back with Vonko and they find Boris as the Crimson Dynamo. They have a fight. It looks like Iron Man has defeated him. And Vonko is like, you must finish him. He'll never give up. Iron Man's like, eh, you know, I, I'm not just going to kill a guy. You know, it's like, we'll just go get the police. They'll take care of him. But of course, then Boris comes back and says, that's why we'll bury you. We're not trusting as you. Of course, a reference to Khrushchev's We Will Bury You line. Boris then hits Iron Man with the electricity again and is about to drop the laser machine on him. Iron Man is able to fly up and lift that machine out of his hands and attack him again. Banco then comes forward and, and uh -oh. sacrifices himself. Yeah, I, I, I hear. Sacrifices himself to take out Boris and the Crimson Dynamo armor. Tony is left feeling quite distraught about this heroic man having died. And uh, then they're wondering at the end, what happened to the Black Widow? And she is wandering in the dark streets of an American city because she knows that the price of failure in communist Russia is death. And so she is now on the run because of her failure. One thing I noticed, this is on page 13, panel one, two, three, four, five. Uh, so second row, one on the right. Tony's face looks kind of Milk Kniffish there. Oh, I think Milk Kniff was one of Kirby's biggest influences. And I think he was probably in the top five of everybody who probably was reading so. comics. That just looks like more of a Milk Kniff face than I usually uh, am used to seeing in here. Yeah. So sorry I ran way over. <laughs> well, it's yeah. a major issue. We're introducing a major character, but... You mean Boris? What? A major character? <laughs> yes. The introduction of Boris. Not a big fan of Hex art in this issue. It's not terrible. It's not great. Until we get to the very final panel where, well, in the previous panel, we have, hey, boss, we just got some hot reports on that phony sister of Boris. She's a real Matahari called the Black Widow. Why don't we go after her? And Tony says, why bother, Happy? She's failed in her mission. Where can she go? Where can she hide? In a way, I pity her. All that beauty outside, but inside, nothing. And then we cut to just a gorgeous shot of the Black Widow in a fog-enshrouded 
docks with bars and rooms. And she thinks, I must keep moving. I know too well the penalty for failure. Interestingly enough, they announce she'll be back next issue. Yeah. So they know they've got to keep her, even though they haven't really set her up for long-term greatness yeah. at all. I liked the return of the Crimson Dynamo. I you know, still like that really unique design that Heck has for it here. Uh, I like the character of Vonko. I love Natasha. I love that Boris and Natasha were a <laughs> Rocky and Bullwinkle joke. Yes. This is a fun issue. I really like it. It is a fun issue. I think that given what a major character this will become, it's a very sort of underwhelming introduction for her. Right. Then just to very quickly address the fact that there's a Tales of the Watcher back here. It's a relatively insubstantial story, but once again, never mind. It's just bad, and we will uh, move on to something else. But the only book I think we're going to see is one thing by Paul Reinman, who is one of the best. So you are the one to get Tales to Astonish here, if I'm not mistaken. This is the last one of the month. Yes, last one of the month. Okay, Tales to Astonish number 54. Giant man learns that his huge size may cause his doom. He's surrounded by deadly enemies and he has no place to turn. Now it says on the cover, only the wasp can save Giant Man, but she is the captive of the evil El Toro. So they're promising on the cover that she's going to be saving him this time. Don't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> she continues to be pretty incompetent and needs saving by him. The issue begins daringly written by Stanley, dramatically drawn by Don Heck, deftly lettered by Art Simek. He is watching the news. Now, this is an interesting thing. They go out of their way to say that the Republic of Santa Rico has democratically elected a communist leader. They say that many times in this issue, that he was democratically elected, but that he still needs to be overthrown because he is a quote unquote strong man, which was an interesting bit of verbal sleight of hand they had in the 60s for saying, well, yeah, these crazy people may have gone temporarily insane and elected a communist or elected a socialist, but they elected a strong man, someone who can't be trusted, shouldn't be trusted, and who is should be treated the same as a dictator, even though they were democratically elected. Well, and Chile so then, hadn't, uh, what's his name? Uh, Allende in Chile hadn't happened yet, right? That was not until the Nixon administration. Yes, no, that happened in 1971. At this point, I believe... India had elected a socialist government. There have been a couple of times when people had elected socialist governments at this point. It was seen as extremely threatening. He is a strong man and must be overthrown. Then the CIA, sure enough, contacts him and asks him to do just that. We then get some panels that did make it into the Marvel No Prize book. Once again, his fan club stops by. This is a more female skewing fan club than some of the other fan clubs we've seen. And he greets them at the door without his mask yeah. And is just talking to them without his mask on. And so the Marvel No Prize book showed this. It's like, uh, dude, don't you have a secret identity? <laughs> he then goes ahead, meets with the CIA, is told to go. They don't say go overthrow this democratic elected government, but they say, we want you to go to Santa Rico as tourists and see if you can unearth any evidence of a communist plot, then report back to the Organization of American States. I mean, who are we kidding here? This is the CIA trying to overthrow the country. Hank Chan go down there once again. Heck comes to life whenever he gets to show non-superheroes, and Hank and Jan in their suits look very stylish and much more attractive than they ever look as superheroes. Hank, like any good Amer the first rule of being an American traveling abroad is you ask your girl to hold your drugs. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I've done every time my wife and I have traveled abroad. The phrase I'm sure we've both used many times, here, Jan, you hold our size capsules. In case I'm searched, I don't want them to be found on me. <laughs> And she says, I'll keep them in my handbag with my cosmetics. 
Ratchet's left him safe because she is grabbed by El Toro and his goons and kidnapped. She just has time to throw him one capsule, one growing capsule. It's an interesting setup for an issue where now he's stuck in giant size as giant man. He has no more capsules and the wasp has been kidnapped. El Toro himself shows up and butts him in the butt very briefly. So this is now the president of this country. And he wears this like weird headpiece with bullhorns on it and a big hoop earring. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure, why not? That seems uh, plausible. And comes out in person to help yes. kidnap ladies. Butts Giant Man in the butt, but then disappears again. Giant Man is running all around town. Sort of humorous panels of him running around in giant size, accidentally getting into various accidents. You sort of get what looks like an old gypsy woman. I guess we don't uh, we don't use that I, term I anymore. Roma is, sort of the, this... is the preferred term these days. Yes, I actually have it. a friend who is of Roma descent, and yeah, she is not very happy when <laughs> and someone uses that term. You get an old woman who is thinks. It's him, the one El Toro's men are seeking. Much as I hate the tyrant El Toro, it would mean death to any citizen who does not report the giant one. Here, please, here he is. I have found him. I always enjoy giant man interacting with trains. He has to ride on a train car as he's running from the police. He, at one point, uses two speedboats as water skis. <laughs> Which, I'm just like, superhero underwater. On a How are your legs not going to split apart in that thing? <laughs> and I just look at that and I'm like, my groin muscles are already hurting. Just looking at that accident waiting to happen. He finally finds the wasp. She does not save him. She is absolutely useless yet again. Oh, how I miss the days when she was at least given a little pin to poke <laughs> people with. But no more. They go and they defeat El Toro, hang him from a flagpole, and then they find documents that prove that El Toro had duped them. And they throw the documents out to the people in the street, all of whom, this is the land of the earring. All of the men and women in the streets wearing hoop earrings on both ears. And says, he cheated us. He bought those election votes. The Reds paid for them. And it says, tyrants, these papers are written in your own hand. You are a red agent. We shall have a new election. You are a traitor. After sending him down there quite explicitly to overthrow a democratically elected leader, they then say two days later, the CIA, I'm sorry, Organization of American States, says, thanks to you, Santa Rico is again a democratic nation. <laughs> yeah, I think you just said the opposite of what you intended to say. Okay, you can make an argument whether or not realpolitik dictates that this was the right thing to do, but but that's not what you did. <laughs> you you might you can make the argument that it's like because of the greater Cold War and all the you know strategic stuff that's going on, we couldn't allow this to happen, and so then this is better for you know the free nations for this to happen. You didn't just turn it into a democratic nation. So then they decide to go back and Wasp still wants a vacation. This wasn't exciting enough for her. So that is the end of the issue. We then, of course, do get a little bit at the end of The Wonderful Wasp Tales a Tale. My girlfriend is in the hospital and as a favor, I'm babysitting with her son. And uh, she is always desperately seeking any audience at all to listen to her science fiction tales. It's still unclear if she's making these up herself or if she is gleaning these from her favorite science fiction magazines. Recurring theme of these issues, nobody cares about the stories she tells. And all he wants to know is how come you don't have your wasp wings when you're normal size? And she thinks kids, I'll never figure them out. So that is the end of that. This is, <laughs> this. I mean, this issue is right out of Mission Impossible, which is a series that was still not starting up on TV. It would start in 1966. But Mission Impossible, almost every episode, they are overthrowing some democratically elected leader in Latin America. And this is a little preview of that. It is an issue that is fascinating as a time capsule of the mixed up morality of the era. As an issue of comics, it is merely okay. It is fine. 
perfectly fine, but not a great comic. There are a couple of things I wanted to address in Giant Man and Wasp having some of their, uh, I guess, what's supposed to be romantic bantering or struggling on the first couple of pages. Jan at one point steals a test tube of his to get his attention, and then she's yelling at him, and he says, oh, go comb your hair with flypaper. But then he goes and uses the whole, like, push pin and a rubber band thing to catapult himself, which we haven't seen him doing much lately. He apparently has his lasso still somewhere. It appears out of nowhere, oddly. And he's using it to lasso Jan, who is walking away from him, saying, now take your growth pill like a good boy and we'll have our little talk. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is a line right out of 2022. And then meanwhile, Giant Man at Ant Size is saying, you asked for it, lady. Wow. Okay. Yeah, sure. In a similar vein, Several pages later, when they are in Santo Rico, they are finally reunited after she had been imprisoned for a while and he had been stuck at giant size. Second panel on page 12, he says, reaching through the porthole, it's only a matter of seconds before Giant Man gets the capsules. Taking one, to make himself small, and then, and he says, okay, doll, here's one for you. And he's holding the capsule, which at his size looks like it's, you know, the size of a large child, but he's just holding it <laughs> under his arm and about to shove it directly into her mouth. It's like, eh, that's weird looking. I'm not okay with that. And also, uh, you know, Jan's face is uncharacteristically poorly rendered by Don Heck there. This looks a little bit odd. Yeah. Anyway, so those were a couple of things that jumped out at me, mainly the whole uh, take your growth pill like a good boy. <laughs> Uh, makes me love this issue for if for no other reason. But then he says, okay, now I want to kiss. And she's like, I would never kiss you. And it's like, well, isn't that the opposite of their normal dynamic? But yes. Always keep him guessing. Always keep him guessing. Any further thoughts on the month of April 1964 before we close? This was a massive month. After a long tease, we finally got Daredevil in a shockingly good book. Really fun for me to get to read a book I'd never read before. We had the introduction of the Black Widow in a sort of underwhelming way. Ditko absolutely killing it on both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange this month. And Kirby trying his best under bad inking to do a true Marvel slugfest in Fantastic Four. Probably the biggest, most epic slugfest that we've had so far in the modern Marvel universe. That yes. is wonderful. And then also the introduction of the Enchantress and Executioner. Yeah. A, a rather momentous month. Monument. moment. Might say. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody out there, for listening. Take care, stay safe, and see you later. Bye, folks. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.